But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> so you get a letter in the mail that says your examiner is, a, I don't know, a jerk. I, I don't even know the, all the details of this. Are you guys familiar with this, joy, this story? <clears throat> this is... Uh, uh, no, not really. Uh, I'm looking at a uh, let's see now, a, a, a listener who who will remain nameless for kind of obvious reasons. Um, uh, kind of turned me on to this story. Apparently, there, and this is a notice from the FAA. At least it's on the FAA.gov website. Uh, 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 subject reexamination of airmen tested by designated pilot examiner Edward Lane. They named this guy. The FAA document names this guy. Um, and so, and it doesn't go into a lot of detail here, but the uh, the kind of read the between the lines is that uh, actually there's a lot more information scrolling down here. Maybe it explains it. But but the read between the lines story is that uh, examiner Edward Lane messed up somehow. Whether he cut corners or whether he was incompetent, I don't know what the details are. But the result well, it, is they they sum it up in paragraph 5. Okay, that's the, good. the sentence structure sucks, but then it's the FAA. Read it for us please, David. Okay, as a result of a special emphasis evaluation designee and subsequent investigation by the FAA of the certification activities of designated pilot examiner Edward L. Lane, the administrator has determined that there is reason to believe that the competency of the airmen examined by DPE Lane from uh, the period September 09 to October 11 is in doubt. As a result of the evidence obtained during the, FA, the investigation, the FAA has determined that these airmen will require re-examination of their competency pursuant to uh, U.S. Code 49, uh, 44709 to ensure safety in air commerce. Unless, it goes on to say, they have subsequently been re-examined for a new rating or for some other reason by a different designated pilot examiner or FAA examiner. Yeah. So this was those guys won't be re-examined. This is for a period of a little bit more than a year. A no, little bit two more. Two years. Two years, dude. Well, September oh nine to October eleven. Okay, two years ending a little bit over a year ago. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, that's <laughs> that's just got to suck, you know. You get a letter in the mail. And they, you, and apparently you, that's what happens is you get a registered letter in the mail. It says it's basically an, a, 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 apparently it's a mail version of when you have a second, get ready to copy this number because we want you to call us. Uh, it's a call the tower, yeah. a call the tower kind of thing. Um, that's that's what the listener tells me is that uh, he got a, a I don't know register some sort of serious looking piece of mail that says give us a call, all right, which he did and had to leave him a message, and that's the way it was left when I spoke to him or actually heard from him. I didn't actually speak to him. But uh, does this happen very often? Does the FAA kind of go, oops, we got to retest all you folks? And this, this is a broad brush. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't say they were going to reexamine people that were checked, uh, tested for their private it says anybody that was examined for this guy, so that means they're private, they're commercial, uh, it means they're instrument, uh, multi-engine, uh, any of that stuff. They, they got, they, they're going to have a do-over letter coming. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and the thing that – I'm still curious, and it's just curiosity. It kind of doesn't in – in the final analysis, I guess, I don't know if it matters, but I'm just really curious whether it's because Lane was incompetent or – improper 
You know, did you get the distinction I'm trying to make there? Yeah, I do. Um, they're not saying in this order, in this notice. So I'm sure somewhere in the bowels of the FAA, there's a, there's a court case on this. Mm-hmm. There's an enforcement case on this. And, uh, um, you know, we could find out. Um, but uh, I don't know that it's all that, all that big a deal. I, I'd like to know how many people are involved in this. Um, yeah, really. That would be an interesting question, um, which may or may not have some bearing on the uh, on the issue at hand. But uh, um, you know, an active examiner, you know, some days can easily give two check rides. Mm-hmm. Figure an average of one check ride a day for two years. Do the math. And uh, I'm search. I'm, I'm looking at a Google search for. Uh, I searched just said Edward Lane, pilot examiner. A lot of stories here. I'm looking for a, some sort of authoritative source here. That uh, let's see now. Uh, oh, theexaminer.com. What's theexaminer.com? That's San Francisco's newspaper, I think, isn't it? Oh, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, theexaminer.com. Uh, graduated from Midwestern State University. Uh, it doesn't give a lot of information here. Let's go back. Well, there is uh, a couple of stories here from, uh, oh, no, here's AIN Online. Uh, let's see what it says. Uh, July 30, 2012. This is, like I said, AIN Online. Um, all right. Pilots who receive certificates from a certain designated pilot examiner in Nevada may need to be reexamined. The FAA released Notice 8900.194 to provide guidance to administrative inspectors. Let's see, I'm going to jump around here. Uh, notice, the notice evolved from an investigation that found, quote, reason to believe that the competency of, oh, okay, that's from the thing we just read. Uh, the notice also said that because evidence gathered during the investigation, because of evidence gathered during the investigation, the FAA has determined, yeah, this is just rehashing what David just read out loud to us. Some of the comments on the AIN online site are interesting. For example? Some of them, some of them apparently came from pilots who were tested by this, uh, by this examiner. Yeah. <coughs> um, what are they saying? Let me... Uh, uh, here's one. I worked my ass off and spent a fortune getting those ratings, and now to be told they're not valid is wrong. Um, let's see. I'll back up the last poster, as I also know the whole story. Uh, really simple. Uh, you have money, you give it to, f- quote, Fast Eddie, unquote. He may fail you, but we'll tell you to come back with more money. Then you just get b- got better and passed. Um, let's see. Okay. And that's just one guy. That's not. That's, that's just one. Let's guy. just cautious, cautious. That's kind of a yeah. serious charge. Um, well, I'm, I'm just reading this. From reading the, the comment. Yeah. Um, unless you know the whole story or even part, which I do, you have nothing to back up your claim. He's, he's responding to another guy. "Quote: The examiner in question is a joke and a fraud to aviation." Hmm. A lot of people uh, are unhappy. Huh? This goes back to July. Uh, first comment here: This story. The, yeah, the story's dateline. Story's July. dated July thirty, um, and um, this document is actually dated July thirteen. So why are we even having this conversation? Apparently, the letters are just going out now. I don't know. This is uh, yeah. I think that's it. It's uh, it's gone from being inside baseball in the industry to uh, front and center for a, a lot of the pilots who may not read the trades, and I don't remember seeing a lot about this elsewhere. Were the pilots 
Now, so what happens? Are these pilots suddenly uh, grounded, or do they just have to get a retest within a certain period of time? They're grounded. They're grounded, yeah. They're grounded. um, No, I believe you. Authority. um, There's a time window for them to respond once they get the letter. Right. But that's... Yeah. But the uh, allegations of the uh, uh, commenter on the AIN page who claimed to know the story from the inside sound like it could be a lot of people uh, first. Second, this isn't the first time this has happened. Uh, it has come up well, before, although I don't recall ever seeing anything quite this extensive where everybody over a two-year period is having to get rechecked. Yeah, so... Anyways, pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Yeah. And why just a two-year period? And why just, you know, specific dates? And, uh, uh, nope, that, things like this. I don't know. <clears throat> I, can think of a, I can think of one reason right off the top. Mm-hmm. That that was the beginning of his period as a DPE. Yeah, that's uh, true. And at the end of the period is uh, how, long, how long it took him to... You know, be made aware of this by somebody and investigate and say, okay, because uh, I think this guy's uh, direct, uh, designated pilot examiner uh, privileges went away uh, quite a bit earlier than this. I just texted, well, just so you I know. I don't get that impression. Yeah. Just FYI, I just texted the listener who uh, is uh, is one of the uh, subjects of this whole thing, and I asked him whether he's grounded as a result of this thing, and he, he says he's not grounded. Uh, mm, okay. Um, he, he doesn't give me a lot of detail here. He just I, I said, are you grounded as a result of this bad DPE thing? And he said, nope. And uh, But he, he does say that he got a registered letter to, that told him to call within 10 days, which he did, and he left a message and he's waiting for a callback. Um, I think we'll wait and kind of see what happens uh, uh, with this, what, what, what this listener finds out, and maybe we'll talk about it again next time. Um, the whole thing's kind of interesting, if not significant. And, uh, well, the last time I heard of any fairly significant uh, fraud allegations in the pilot certification process, it was mostly focused around medical certification. Right. That happened a little while ago, right? They discovered that people were were, and, what, were lying it, on the questionnaire, was, right, and getting away it, with it. And, yeah, well, part of it was, uh, in, in most instances, has been the misreporting of the applicant. Right. And it cropping up uh i'm laughing because I, used, I said lying and you said the misreporting i don't know <laughs> go ahead well the you know what what they what they sign on the paper is uh if it's not the truth is uh perjury it's lying uh but they're not reporting and I've talked to some of these older pilots who will swear up and down that they're not lying. They're just not telling everything. <laughs> and if you look at the way the form is worded, uh, not telling everything is the same thing. So uh, guy that was uh, one guy was caught because he was uh, claiming to be well and healthy and no issues and got his medical 
and a cross-check of records showed that he was drawing disability because of some illness or injury that would have precluded him from exercising the privileges he was exercising. And they kind of said, you know, that's 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 fraud. Uh, we're we're going to prosecute you for that. Right. And bad things happen when you pull that stuff. Yeah. This one, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, a a couple of follow-up texts about from how those. they got got onto the guy. A couple follow-up. Well, it sounds like the pilot community knows about it. The, according to all those comments that Jeb was reading, um, uh-huh. the pilot community thinks he's a jerk. You know, a jerk that you can go to him to get an easy easy pass. Uh, you know, and so I, I'm surprised it didn't come out quicker than two years. You know, if those if those are true, if those reports are true. Oh, it probably came out a lot earlier than that. But we're talking about the time period that they elected to investigate and how long it takes to process this stuff per the code. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, we're going to move on here. Um, but one final note here. So, the uh, the listener again that we were t- the, the the unnamed listener um, uh, texted me a little bit more detail. He said that he spoke with the FISDO yesterday, um, and uh, and and he's supposed to hear back from the official officials about the recheck. But uh, but the uh, after talking to the FISDO, it's his belief that he's not grounded. So, anyways, okay. Uh, let's see now. What's next? Oh, hi guys. How you doing? I'm talking to my good friends. This is episode 306 of, uh, of uncontrolled airspace, the general aviation podcast. And, uh, and I'm talking to my two good friends, uh, uh Jeb Burnside's out there in uh, Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? I'm doing well. Kind of tired today. Um, yeah. I, I was up late last night and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So I may not be my usual vivacious, uh, <laughs> No, no, not not. Show, not just show a little more leg. That'll make yeah. it more vivacious. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so the, the weather website I go to, uh, you know, I've told it what cities I'm interested in, or well, I don't know whether I've done that or whether it just remembers cities I've asked about in the past. But the upshot is that at the top of the screen, it shows me a couple of little thumbnail boxes with a quick synopsis of the weather in those cities. So it, it, there's like Boston, and there's like you know Oshkosh, and there's Sarasota. Right. And um, and the Sarasota box had a little alert, a red alert thing, um, the other day, as if there maybe were some weather warning things going on. Were you having particularly more severe thunderstorms the other day, recently? Or? No, not that I recall. Um, uh, you know, I, I could have just clicked the little red thing of, and found out, but I didn't. You know, I saw. Yeah, we, we've had a couple of instances of some really hard rain, but it's Florida, you know. Uh, it's it's kind of cloudy and there's some high cirrus and there's some some thorns moving through and um, whatnot like that this afternoon. Most of them are south of me, um, but tomorrow they're advertising like 80% chance of rain. So I think uh, it's probably going to get wet. Um, yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Likewise up here. Yeah, it's, I mean it's not it's not been a big deal. Yeah. Uh, that other voice out there is Dave Higdon talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? Just doing lovely, lovely, enjoying fall weather. That's all. That's it. That's all you get to say. Just fall. What's fall weather in Kansas? <laughs> Nearly ninety uh, degrees. Well, right? it's 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 getting cooler. The nights are cooler. We're already past uh, uh, the, uh, the the days are shorter than the nights now, and uh, uh, getting dew on the grass a lot of mornings. Uh, uh, the other morning, wow, I was getting ready to head out on it. I think it was Saturday morning. It was something like 47 degrees out for the overnight low. 
Uh-huh. Have you uh, have you gotten to freezing yet? No, you couldn't have. It's too- no, we haven't had a we haven't had a frost or a freeze yet. Uh, but uh, we we had some drizzly weather uh, a few days ago, and kind of gray and ugly and discouraging. Yesterday was one of them. But man, when it gave way, it gave way to this you know stunning blue. Turn on the polarizer, uh, make the clouds pop. Uh, a gorgeous day. So. Mm-hmm. Got got to spend part of the weekend around airplanes, except right after we got there, uh, that big blue kind of went away, and it was just this high, thin overcast, just enough to make it gray. Mm. But not enough to keep you from flying, I mean, if you chose to. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. So. Uh, um, looking at, uh, while, I'm, while we're talking about the weather, uh, I... You know, being a Florida resident these days, I tend to have an interesting or uh, an acute interest, I should say, in the National Hurricane Center. And um, uh, I guess two things: one, there's there's something warming up uh, out there in uh, uh, let's see, 925 miles west of the Cape Verde Islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have a name yet, but uh, says 70 percent chance of tropical cyclone formation. And moving uh, west, northwestward, or northwestward at 10 to 15 miles an hour. So, um, Florida and the Carolinas, Georgia could be uh, in for it here in a few days. I don't know. We'll yeah. see. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, there, if you remember Hurricane Kirk or Tropical Storm Kirk, I forget which, it, earlier in the year, um, earlier in the summer, I should say. Uh, Again, you know, I, my, my, my attention level is sufficiently acute on these things that I'll read the public advisories, I'll read the forecasting discussions, i read all that stuff. And there was one of them, the, 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 again, the, the tropical storm was named Kirk, and uh, as it waned and started to peter out, one of the final uh, advisories uh, came out from the National Weather Service and said, Kirk will not live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm Jack Hodgson, and uh, and I'm coming to you today from. Let's see now. How would I put this? I'm 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 on the uh, the eastern slopes of the Mad River Valley in the Green Mountains of uh, Vermont, and uh, back here visiting my brother up in Warren, Vermont. And uh, uh, it's just uh, it's seriously pretty up here. I mean, I live in part of New Hampshire, which is fairly pretty, but the but but by comparison to this, I live in the big city. I mean, he's, we're out in the middle of, well, it's, you know, it's the middle of nowhere, on, but it's actually starting to be the time of year when it gets busy out here. The, uh, the fall foliage fans, I like that fall foliage fans are, uh, are all over the place here. Now I was here four weeks ago and it was very different than now. So there's lots of crowds for the fall foliage. And, uh, once it starts to snow, I guess this area really starts hopping, um, with the ski places and, uh, uh that was what brought my brother to this area in the first place a long, long time ago. So, anyways, hmm. what's going on in the world? Um, you know, there's David, I had a question for you. I'm sorry, were you about to say something? Uh, I said there's a list. Yeah, there is a list. Um, David, I was going to ask you something. <laughs> um, reviewing um, last, the last episode, uh, I, uh, I think it was the last one. might have been the one before. Um, I, I heard something. I often hear things when I'm editing it that I didn't hear when we were actually recording because... I only pay half attention both times, and you know I catch things. Yeah, uh, you know I uh, I think Annie sees me as the same way. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's so many. There. I know too many do jokes. You do. <laughs> Anyways, um, you described the wings of an airplane as being 
anhedral, I think is what you said. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. Anhedral. Anhedral is as, in, as compared to dihedral. Now, to me, dihedral is when the wings kind of, the wing tips are kind of upward, higher than the, than the root, I guess is the way I would describe that. Um, what's anhedral? The opposite. Yeah, it's just the opposite. The, uh, the angle, if you go through the, uh, the uh, uh, center line of the, of the wing camber uh, from root to tip, the angle formed there is negative it's uh, as opposed to a straight wing like uh, some airplanes like Cessna 12140 are basically straight wing airplanes no anhedral no dihedral uh, 172 however has uh, uh, not a really pronounced amount of dihedral uh, but a little bit and it helps promote spiral stability uh, makes it a little easier to, to uh, make the airplane stable Anhedral is the downward angle, and uh, it can contribute some to stability depending on the wing, but it's very often known for its ability to induce instability and used to help make some aircraft more maneuverable that way. Right. Yeah, I would. Yeah. So is that the, is that the virtue of it to try and make it a little bit a little bit more uh, you know kind of you know maneuverable, right? Well, it can it can do anything from make the roll stability neutral, depending on how the anhedral and the fuselage and the center of gravity all work together, to actually promoting spiral instability and and uh, and is such some uh, propensity to roll. And uh, you see it uh, if you take a look at uh, I believe it's the uh, McDonnell Douglas F four Phantom. Mm-hmm. You'll see some anhedral in that, and a lot of anhedral in the tail. Right, uh, and it helps make the the brick, as a friend of mine called it, uh, uh, really maneuverable for not having the cleanest uh, aerodynamics in the world. Because that that was a remarkably versatile fighter airplane. I mean, it did carrier duty, it did close support duty, uh, air to air, air supremacy, close air, close air. <laughs> close ground support it's uh it's a very useful characteristic to design anything and into an airplane it uh depending on what you want to use it for and it sometimes describes my frame of mind (laughs) spirally unstable you're i see you're making a pitch you're 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 starting a little campaign for that to be the title of this episode haven't you No, uh, I, I, I think we ought to use it for something else. But. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I see. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe. Huh? Okay. All right. Well, good. That's what I wanted to know about. That's, that's kind of interesting. Moving on. David, both you and I posted to the list this story about the guy building the bathtub airplane. Oh, no kidding. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, like, uh, I, I posted it and, and then suddenly looked at the list and realized that it was already there. And, it, and, and we both posted, not only we both post the story, we po- posted the links to the exact same article about the story. And so uh, I was a little puzzled at first. I'm thinking, wait a minute, did I post this twice? Oh, wait, Dave posted it. Hey, great one. minds, man. What uh, can you say? Yeah, I know, right. Huh. So uh, what's the story here, David? What, what, first of all, tell us about the bathtub airplane. Well, it's it's a a 1924 r- racer design, believe it or not, that was a uh, a, a home builder's airplane back in the 
20, uh, post World War One era, uh, when you could buy a Curtis Jenny for probably a hundred bucks. Yeah, uh, that was the trainer of the of the era for World War One, and there were lots of them around. A lot of barnstormers got started in them and started their flying businesses in them. Uh, well, the Dormoy bathtub was a fairly simple. It actually reminds me of a couple of ultralights of thirty years ago. Uh, that I have to admit weren't particularly successful designs 30 years ago. Uh, just like this airplane was only marginally successful in the 20s. Uh, and one of the things, it wasn't the design of the airplane so much, uh, although the era intrigued me to find a, a guy working on a design, home building it from, you know, the 1920s. It was just how long this guy had been working on this thing that, made me kind of sit up and well, go, wow. It's interesting, that, you know, calling this a flying bathtub, and I can certainly see the the uh, the rationale for that, uh, looking at the, the design of, of... Yeah, the shape know, of the uh, fuselages. I, I wouldn't call that a fuselage. I'd call yeah, that I know. A, yeah. a, a, a pilot compartment. <laughs> yeah. Or something like that. But then if you look at the Aronka C2 which is widely known as the flying bathtub. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of similarities to it. Yeah, you're, you're right, because it's like the, the Aronka, the, only, the biggest difference is they covered the back end of the Aronka. Right. right. So well, I, I wonder if it's pretty much the same. <clears throat> I wonder if there's any, um, there's any linkage here. A, any, well, I, yeah, I, I kind of assumed there was. I guess maybe I shouldn't have jumped to that conclusion. Where are you seeing a picture of the... Uh, of the Aronka. I'm not seeing that here. Oh, if you oh it's not in this story. No, I know. It's not a story. If you go to Wikipedia and put in Aronka C-2, okay. um, up. but then, then if you go to the Wikipedia page for the Dormoy bathtub, let me... Ah, uh, yes, okay. That's the airplane that I'm... The, air, the C-2, that's the airplane I'm familiar with. There's one of right. them, I believe there's one of them in the museum at EAA at Oshkosh. Let's see. Uh, there is, I believe, one in the uh, museum in uh, in Oshkosh. There's one in uh, the Virginia Aviation Museum. A picture thereof on the Wikipedia page, and another one in the Can Canada. I won't say Canadian. Canada Aviation and Space Museum. Mm -hmm. Another picture thereof. Yeah. On the Wikipedia page. And it does say in this article that the EAA, <coughs> excuse me, the EAA Air Venture Museum in Oshkosh has an example of a C2N on display. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So, it, it you know the Aronka is a little later, of a little later vintage than the uh, yeah. Domroy. Uh, it came out, I believe, twenty eight or twenty nine, and I know a guy that owned a C two that he never flew because he had the luxury of flying a C three. <laughs> And I met him at Oshkosh. Yeah, <laughs> Once was, you've flown a C two, you never a C three, you never go back, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He'd spent three and a half full days yeah. flying an Aronka C three from Wichita to Oshkosh. And he's stopping every seventy five or eighty miles for fuel because that's his fuel capacity. And he caught my attention. This was, uh, I'm going to say, 95, maybe 96. 
because he was asleep under the airplane using the wheel as a pillow <laughs> during the peak of the air show. Mm-hmm. And I'm out roaming around like I do during the air show when I work, when I shot for the show daily, looking for those opportunistic shots of people watching the air show. And all around this guy, man, their people are, you know, they're, they're shielding their eyes and they're watching. And, and I even remember it was, uh, it was, uh, Sean D flying at the moment. Uh, because I'm thinking to myself, how in the hell could anybody sleep through that? <laughs> and this guy has got the cap down over his eyes, his head propped up on the tire. And I could actually hear him when the airplane went far away go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I positioned myself to get the crowd in the background, but get a shot of this guy, full length, really wide, really wide lens. I'm going to get the airplane in the shot, him asleep in the shot, and then all the rest of the world watching the air show in the background. And without moving a muscle, this voice says, why are you taking my picture? <laughs> Yeah. So I explained. I said, please don't move. And he goes, I don't need to move. I just want to know why you're taking my picture. And I said, well, for the show daily here, yada, yada, yada. And he goes, you're not that guy from Wichita, are you? And at this point, I'm kind of freaking. Yeah. Well, come to find out, he worked for the FAA FISDO here. Uh. Jerry Griggs. He was an, uh, an examiner in the Wichita FISDO. Uh, did a lot of uh, ATP work, did a lot of check rides with guys uh, getting their jet ratings. But this was what, and he lives on a private airstrip down southwest of Wichita. Uh, and this was what he flew to Oshkosh, three and a half days. Because I finally had to say, okay, I need your name and where you're from. And said, well, obviously, I'm from down in Kansas. I, I live in, I live at Lake Waltana, but I read the Wichita newspaper. I know who you are. Huh. Well, I don't know who you are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I was still writing aviation for the Eagle in those days. Mm-hmm. and uh, But it would kind of freak me out. You're not that guy from Wichita, are you? Uh, but it was, was a perfect image of the yellow seat three that's on the, uh, uh, that comes up if you Google sure. Moronka C3. Sure. That was back in the days before Jeb and I made you famous. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm looking at the picture of the C3. Um, now that's that's a, you can see the connection, but that's a distinctive looking design right there. The C3. Uh, that's that's a that's a you know a pregnant something or other. That's a uh, <laughs> that's an interesting. And I, you know, I was looking at the C2, trying to picture somebody using the wheel as a pillow, and it's a larger wheel. And so you look at the C3, at least the one that's pictured here. And you can kind of see how maybe he was using the the tire as a uh, as a pillow. And uh, but uh, well, some of the C twos were built were with bicycle tires, and uh, or you know what what looked like bicycle tires. Uh, and some of the later C twos were built with something closer to it because there wasn't just one C two over the evolution of the model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, that's interesting. Those big wheels, by the way, were the uh, uh, short and soft field wheels. <laughs> <laughs> Neville, you have control of the board. Select a category. Disclaimers for 100. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are appearing as this. 
Neville. What is private individuals? Correct. Select again. Disclaimers for 200. Their comments do not necessarily reflect these. Neville. What is the opinions of the organizations they work for? Yes. Select again. Disclaimers for 300. Anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously this. Neville. What is very general? That's it. Disclaimers for 400. You should always remember your training, consider your situation, and fly this. Neville. What is the aircraft? Yes. Select. Disclaimers for 500. But you knew this. Robert. What's a lineys? No, Wendy. What is the punchline? No, Neville. What is that? Correct, but you knew that. Congratulations, Neville. You have swept the category. We here at the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. Thank you. I came across an interesting thread in Twitter uh, a uh, couple days back. Uh, let's see, two days ago, I guess. Um, this is from a friend of ours, a, a, a fellow podcaster, uh, uh, Mike Daniels from, uh, from Las Vegas, who uh, is, uh, has, I don't know if he's been on UCAP, but he's participated in the uh, Sun and Fun uh, Gathering of Aviation Podcasters, and he used to be part of a, uh, what did they call that podcast, the Mile High Flyers podcast that's kind of defunct now. But uh, um, Oh yeah, now I remember. Yeah, so Mike was, uh, uh, posted this uh, thread on Twitter. Uh, Jeb, you were, you're, you were named here too, so you might have noticed it, not named in terms of it being right. related to you, just he was trying to call it to our attention. Um, he writes, uh, he, he says, I learned in the Nellis uh, FAST or F-A-S-T meeting uh, that when we fly in the MOAs, uh, and we do out here, he's out in Las Nevada, of course, uh, that we share airspace with drones, they told him, all right? And, uh, and, and I asked him back, I said, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I basically said, uh, is this when the mowers are, 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 are marked as hot or any time? And he basically said, any time. He said, from what the Nellis controllers said, they can be there at any time, always above 11,000 feet. Uh, he says the the message they were giving us was to always talk with them and squawk, and they will divert military aircraft or you. Uh, and he well, said, that's damn nice of them. Yeah, I know, that's, huh? That's mighty fine of them, yeah. 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 And, and so it, it's been a long time since I've had a KD. Again, when I flew out in California, I flew in and around the MOAs uh, fairly often, um, and, and we always knew to make sure whether or not they were hot. But the sense I had back then was that if they weren't, quote-unquote hot, you know, active, um, that it was safe to fly through them um, the way you would fly through just about any airspace. And, and now I'm trying to, you know, and, I, and you know, it's funny. That You're doubting what you learned. Well, I'm, I'm doubting what I remember. I'm not sure what I learned is the problem. Um, and so I, I, I kind of wanted to talk about this a little bit here, you know, and, and I suppose I might have looked it up myself but I knew I was going to be talking to you guys, so I figured I'd tell, wait. Tell, tell him, Jeb. Yeah. So here's one of my, you know, I mean, I guess what's the definition of a MOA? Let's let's see what does the FARs say a MOA is? Military uh, operations area. Well, that I know, but I mean specific. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't look at the FARs. Look at the AIM. Okay. And and uh, do you have easy access to that? I'm digging myself right now, but uh, in just a few moments, <coughs> with my, with my internet connection, the connection catches up. <coughs> uh, handbooks and manuals. 
Aeronautical Information Manual, Airspace, Chapter 3. Ah, military Operations Areas, 3-4-5. MOAs consist of airspace defined vertical and lateral limits established for the purpose of separating certain military training activities from IFR traffic. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you want to know about a MOA is even if it's hot, you can go smoking through it VFR. Yes. I guess I I, I do recall that. Okay, yep. Might not be the smartest thing you've ever done. Right. But it's legal to do. (laughs) Yep. All right. Uh, Whenever a MOA is being used, non-participating IFR traffic. Now, what they're saying when they say non-participating IFR traffic is traffic that is not participating in the activity for which the MOA is active. Okay. Oh, I see. Yep. Okay. Non-participating IFR traffic may, may be cleared through an active MOA if IFR separation can be provided by ATC. Otherwise, ATC will reroute or restrict non-participating uh, traffic, IFR traffic, I should say. Um, I, I, don't, I don't recall ever being in a hot, well, uh, I can't say that. I probably have been IFR in a hot MOA, you know, one, that, one that was just going hot. Mm-hmm. One that was just about to go cold or something, and the right. uh, the activity was on the other end of it or at a higher altitude or something like that. Um, normally, I'll get a reroute around a hot mow up period. Okay. Now, yeah, I think I, one I, time I got into <clears throat> one where it, it had just gone hot, and I was IFR, and all they did was ask me to change altitude right. and maintain heading. And if Which I was going to do either, of, if I was going to do anything different there, they wanted me change, to leave. Change alt- Go ahead, Jeb. Change, the change of altitude may have taken you out of the MOA. It didn't take me out of the MOA. It took me out of the levels they were using. Right. Right. Okay. So it was well, actually, I guess maybe it did because it was one on top of another. It was a low level and a high level. So, yeah. yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. It took me out of the high-level one that was hot at the time. Uh, but laterally, well, actually, they didn't want me to screw with that either. Right. Well, All I, I know is that they were dropping bombs over to one side of me. Yeah, well, I, have a, I have a question about this whole thing, but I want to make sure. Jeb, did you have finished it? Did you, were you able to finish your thought there? Well, I didn't finish reading everything there is to know about MOAs. Um, but uh, what I would suggest is... Uh, the, 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 the question of whether um, drones will only be found in MOAs or restricted areas or whether drones will only be found in active MOAs, um, the answer is no. Uh, the answer is that you will see drones anywhere at any time, period. Um, I, <clears throat> years ago, was droning along mm-hmm. uh, just south of uh, Ed, um, Edrews. Uh, Edwards Air Force Base uh, in California, mm-hmm. uh, headed, headed east in this instance, I don't know, 11, 12, 13,000 feet, uh, minding my own business, and uh, <laughs> ATC calls and says, um, yeah, I've got um, traffic for you at uh, um, 12 o'clock and um, 500 feet below you. I said, yeah. He says, this is a, an unmanned aircraft uh, with a manned aircraft trailing it. I said, okay, and started looking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Started looking for same, and uh, I indeed found it. I don't, I 
don't re- I wasn't familiar with drones per se, uh, unmanned aircraft, as it were. This was back um, 99, 2000 time frame. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just wasn't Perfect. on my radar, wasn't on my radar screen, so to speak. Um, but sure enough, here goes this little putt-putt going scooting by, and uh, it looks like a Cessna 206 uh, following it. Uh, so this was obviously an early test, but this was um, this was on the airway south of Aunt Edwards. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to bother pulling up a chart. I don't have my iPad handy right here either. Um, but as I recall, I was completely outside of any restricted um, or MOA airspace, and certainly it was. If I was in such airspace at the time, it was inactive. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I got out of this whole thing was the the different rules that may or may not apply when a MOA is active versus when it's not. Let me build up this. Let me ask a question unrelated to MOAs. Are military aircraft flying in regular airspace, are they required to follow the FARs? No, they're required to follow military regulations. Right. So, Which, which yeah. just coincidentally... Yeah. Often coincide. Yeah. Okay. Match up with. There's this public aircraft exemption, and the FAA and the DOT, they like it a whole lot if you don't exercise the exemption where airspace rules and traffic rules exist, which is why they have MOAs so that they can have places where they can ignore those. Right. And, and, and I understand purpose. that, and that makes sense when the MOA is active. My question but, is, are they allowed to break, to bend or break the rules when the MOA is cold? Well, they're... Huh. No, is no. the quick answer. Then why uh, are they allowed to fly drones in there when it's cold? That was kind of my point. Yeah, okay. I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced they are, okay, first of all. Um, but secondly, um, they can fly drones under other circumstances. Yeah. Like like with a well, like with a a, a a plane following, like as I saw right. outside. Yeah, I'm not sure not, how that becomes not, legal just because it's a plane following. Well, uh, that's their see and avoid. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's how the drones that we've seen at Oshkosh, uh, the last three or four years, uh, they came under special rules set up and pre-approved routes, and they may have followed a military right training route. They may have gone on something that was completely off airways. But there had to be somebody taking them off at the origin point. There had to be somebody to land them at the destination. They had to have an escort aircraft able to intercede or at least communicate with the people in control on en route. And it had to be that way going and coming. So the airplane, if I remember what the guy told us correctly, the airplane had to come in like 10 days early to avoid coming in at a time period when in anything remotely approaching the Oshkosh arrival rush would be going on. Right. Uh, there's a lot. That, they've been flying them out there in the real airspace for a lot longer than it's been an issue for us. Yeah. But they've had that little escort guy trailing along behind them. Uh, and they've, they've done it under waivers in some airspace. In another airspace, they've just made the airspace hot and done it there because the, 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 the MOA already exists. Yeah. I mean, this, this trailing, this accompanying aircraft thing kind of, okay, that helps with the see and avoid thing. It, it does not address the whole problem of when these things occasionally escape. And, uh, you know, so. 
there's another drone story coming up later on. Let's let's come back to this in a few minutes. So we could drone on about this forever, and we probably and, will. And we have, I think. Yeah, and I think have. we have, yeah. and we have. In the forums, uh, so I think it was last episode uh, we talked about the fact that AOPA had this online course about ADSB, uh, and uh, and Dave, I think it was you who was. Uh, who was telling us about it and and uh, you know suggesting that we look into it? Um, I don't know if it was a result of that or if he did it separately. But uh, Laminar, our our uh, friend in, in the uh, in the forums, uh, Rick, uh, my uh, my cub front, cub pilot friend from uh, from Vermont, as a matter of fact, down the road, I went right past his place. Um, posts in the uh, in the forums, he says online course on ADSB from AOP, AOPA, and then he says, in parens he says with a rant. All right. Um, first, he starts off by saying, "I recommend the course." He says it was very edu- very educational. He said, "I finally understand the difference between in and out, and the difference between UAT and 1090ES." And, and he goes on and on here, um, and, and he describes the situation as a mess. He says, "What a mess!" He says, "We're being asked to uh, choose technologies from a menu of incompatible technologies. Uh, you can get FIS with UAT, but you can't get it with 1090. It goes on and on. A very interesting post. Um, he kind of talks about his reaction to uh, to the uh, various choices and decisions that people have to make uh, to buy ADSB equipment these days. Um, uh, so, uh, well, and you can even go hybrid. You can okay the the uh, I think he talks about that. Uh, he says hybrid equipment that can do every. He says it may become available. Are you saying it is available now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it does. It's not all in, necessarily in one package. Uh, you can go with 1090 ES, which is a system that doesn't fail if it loses touch with the ground. Uh, it, it basically still depends on the transponder acting like a transponder, except it's informed by a, a GPS position or some kind of position source. Right. I mean, rather than going, but then to- you can get the end stuff on a separate receiver that's on the same frequency as the 978 universal access transceiver. Okay. R- rather than going to kind of doing a tutorial on ADSB here, David, my question would be, do you agree with Laminar that it's a little bit of a babble? It's a little bit of a, you know, kind of crazy thing of trying to figure out and make the choices and stuff. I Yeah, I do, actually. Uh the uh, the the fact is that they could have uh, they could have structured it differently and basically eliminated some choice. Uh, and if you wanted the benefits that come from ADSB in, you just had to buy the separate separate receiver. But it took care of the out on one frequency for everybody: ten ninety extended squitter at all altitudes, which you can still do. But if you wanted the weather and the traffic feed that's available for the 978 universal access transceiver, you'd just have to buy a receiver to get that. Uh, but, and I agree with this observation, that wasn't going to make in receivers particularly economically feasible. Mm-hmm to have the only technology based on that frequency be a receiver to feed you graphic weather and and, uh, traffic feed from the uh, radar. Uh, And I also agree that uh, dollar-wise, the the 978 UAT stuff is coming in a little less expensive as a total package than just doing a 1090ES and the position 
source hookup. Yeah, yeah. So you know the 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 compl- the complexity and the confusion was an error, if you will, based on an attempt to give pilots more flexibility and some lower cost choices. If you're if you're flying a turbine that already has traffic and weather and you're always above 180 because that's where turbines you know are happiest and on terms of fuel flow in particular the 1090 ES is all you need in the rest of the world's market where there is no general aviation on par with what we have here in the United States 1090 ES is not a big cost burden for most of the operators there if they can afford to fly there at all they can afford that little higher cost uh, but the 978 UAT was really intended to be a lower cost option with more bells and whistles for all those drivers down below 180 who may not have an active collision avoidance system and may not have a weather data link receiver that requires you a $50 a month subscription. Right. Okay. So, so anyways, Jeb, anything you want to add to this whole situation? Or? No, no, I, I, I uh, um, I would echo, uh, let me put it this way, I would echo Laminar's frustration. Um, yes, there is, you know, some method to the madness here. Um, but I would simply state that, you know, it's all really designed to just enrich a few FAA contractors. Yeah, yeah. So Laminar concludes uh, by saying, uh, uh, anyways, he says, I recommend taking the course. He thought the AOPA course was a, a good introduction and a good way to kind of get some, some information on, on at least to at least help you make some of these choices and some of these decisions. So check out the AOPA website. You'll find out more about that. So I don't watch any of them, all right? But I get the feeling, I've seen from the popular press that there is a theme of TV shows these days. There's a genre of TV shows these days about zombies, about the living dead, all right? Oh, yeah, man. It's big. Okay. Apparently, Light Squared is back. What's the story? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I liked mine better, though, I will say. What yeah. was yours? The, the, the Francisco Franco of LTE providers. <laughs> yeah, that's still a, valiantly holding on in his fight to right, remain yeah, that's dead. Right. Yeah, that's right. Light Squared is still doomed. Um, so anyways, Jim, I, I, I like yours. Yeah. I, I, Light Squared is the company that uh, up to, oh, what, about uh, six months ago, nine months ago, uh, was desperately, I'm sorry, how long? Earlier this year. Yeah, was, was, was desperately trying to, uh, to put together a system that would uh, provide better, let me for the, oversimplify it by saying cell phone service, um, but... Uh, uh, it's actually not even cell phone service, it's, 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 it was it's wireless internet wireless service. Wireless internet service. The problem yeah, was that phone. the, the fa- problem is they were using some radio spectrum that was wildly interfering with GPS. And uh, many of us uh, uh, fought back and, and thought that we had put a stake through the heart of, I'm sorry, I guess that's, a, that's not a zombie thing. That's a, that's a, a uh, that's a. Uh, you feel free to use a vampire analogy. A vampire if you analogy, know. right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but now, what's going on with Light Squared? So I, I confess, I really don't want to know anything more about Light Squared. So I haven't read any of these stories. I've just read the headlines. David, Jeb, you both posted this on the, on the list. What's the <laughs> David, Light Squared ahead. story David, now? 
Uh, Jeb's Francisco Franco thing is so good. He's got to start. All right, Jeb, you go first. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll just read. Uh, uh, basically, um, lights, sp- light squared, excuse me, light squared uh, is, of course, um, A, in, in bankruptcy. I believe it's chapter. Um, I think so, uh, yeah. Chapter 11 is restructuring. Uh, chapter 7 is liquidation. I don't recall which chapter of the bankruptcy. Ch- chapter 11. Chapter, chapter 11. 11. That's restructuring. Okay. Um, and uh, what they've done now all of a sudden is identified some spectrum which they can use to make their service a reality. Uh, it is not adjacent to the GPS spectrum, so there's no longer any threat of GPS interference. Um, but what they have uh, what they have said is that if the FCC will allocate to us some of this spectrum, uh, we can get our act together and take it on the road and uh, um, start start uh, rolling out this service. Now, um, interestingly enough, the spectrum involved here is uh, spectrum that is already being used for this LTE network uh, by. Um, oh, I guess you've probably never heard of these two firms, Verizon Wireless or AT and T. Okay. <laughs> so, um, basically, as I read this story, uh, so the new plan give the carrier thirty megahertz of frequencies on which to operate the LTE network. That's ten megahertz less than it had wanted, but still comparable to the amount of spectrum uh, Verizon and AT and T are using. I, I guess it's not it's not AT and T or Verizon spectrum, but it's. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I know what it is. I know what spectrum it is. It's spectrum that the National Weather Service uses for weather balloons. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, they they say that they're they'd be happy to share that with the National Weather Service. <laughs> okay. So is this real? Is this going to happen this time, or is this just you know a gasp? Wow, that's a good question. I have no I have no insights whatsoever. Um. One noteworthy thing here is that uh, the, one of the stories, I think it's the one Jeb posted, says that the carrier, being uh, light squared, is offering to permanently give up its terrestrial rights to the upper band of the spectrum that it originally proposed to use for LTE. And that's the spectrum that was right next door to the GPS frequencies, the ones that were giving us fits over interference. Uh I applaud them for their flexibility. Uh, I, uh, but I'm going to plead my grandmother's line. Uh, you know, I'm from Missouri. You're going to have to show me that even your new plans won't somehow trickle into interfering with all the rest of us' use of GPS or any other network that's already established. Because, frankly, guys trust level is not real high with you after that propaganda warfare and the false science you guys came up with last time and trying to put over on the rest of us what we knew wasn't viable. Yeah. So, I don't know what to say. Francisco Franco is still dead. The light squared is still dead. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I fear we may talk about this some more in the future. We'll see. Finally, uh, Jeb, so what's, <laughs> what's this story Don't about drones? Don't fear the light squared. Drones deciding to kill on their own. What, what is ah, this? This is, okay. I, you know, while you refresh your memory on this, I, I have to say that 
you know, and I've mentioned this before that, and I think some of you, at least, I think you guys have agreed that from a technological standpoint, these things are fast. Drones and, and you know, uh, remotely piloted vehicles are, are a really interesting technology and, and, you know, and, you know, are fun. I mean, I, I own one, right? I had that quad, quadrocopter that we all have had some fun with. And, uh, but it kind of amazes me the extent to which we are just casually drifting into a world that is filled with all these devices that are just, and I'm making a little symbol with my fingers just two inches apart, that close to a scene from the Terminator. Yeah. All right. Um, it, it, these, you know, I mean, it's just, just, you know, wow. Hey, hey California's approved uh the uh the uh testing of driverless cars yeah well i mean nevada's already legalized it right but uh you know and that's i guess that's scary too but you know death from above is primal i mean that's really frightening and so well death from above outside world war ii has never equaled death on the highway well that's true but that's yeah okay well i, I there are probably <laughs> a few people in, in pakistan or afghanistan who might disagree yeah. with you. they so, don't have too many freaking highways yeah i know really Dave, uh, Jeb, what's this story all about? This story is in um, um, a website called The Diplomat. Yeah. TheDiplomat.com. Uh, the head on the story is uh, when drones decide to kill on their own. It's dated yesterday. I will uh, highlight this with uh, this excerpt. Uh, I'll read it. The U.S. military and presumably others have been making steady prog progress developing drones that operate with little, if any, human oversight. Um, basically, uh, new unmanned vehicles will no longer be the dumb drones, quote-unquote, uh, in use today. Instead, they will have the, the ability to, quote, reason, unquote, and will be far more autonomous, with humans acting more as supervisors than controllers. Basically, what this article talks about is... Um, where the the uh, the human is not going to be in, in nearly in the loop. Uh, there's not going to be, for example, a, maybe a human controlling uh, um, the drone from kilometers or, or, or multi-thousand miles away. Um, the drone instead would be launched and kind of set off on its own to go snooping. Uh, if it finds something it thinks is a worthy target... It may or may not have to phone home before it can fire on it. Well, certainly it's going to be programmed with some sort of rules of engagement, right? That they they will be software based. <laughs> yeah, there will be software based rules of engagement. That's, now, now in in the near term, let's let I'm sure that there will be oh I say a slippery slope here mm -hmm. that we will go down. That will have gradations of human involvement. But obviously, what all this is headed for is. You know, launch the drone, um, and, you know, five hours it'll come back, and we can download the video and see what it did. You know, it may or may not have all of its armament when it comes back. Let me refer you to the uh, Omni Consumer Products Model ED209 and what it was almost able to do to RoboCop. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so this story, I'm skinning, skimming this story. You've read it more clearly, carefully than I have. It, I, I think it's only talking right now about this happening, um, you know, in wars, in, in you know, <laughs> conflict areas. Right. But that's the point. Slippery slope. Didn't you hear? 
it's called it's called a global war on terror for a reason. Yeah, I know. And so, how long before they let the drones that are that are patrolling the Mexican border um, have this kind of autonomy, or the drones that are protecting, um, you know, the Washington D.C. Uh, uh, restricted airspace? Um, Great question. Well. It, there needs to be a couple of prime directives programmed into these things. Yeah, right. You know, even in Asimov's world, that wasn't successful. No, it wasn't successful in RoboCop either. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't successful in The Terminator. Well, although it got better in sequels. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Anyways. Here, here's, 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 here's just Dave's bottom line, okay? okay. Well, Dave's is- bottom line is that for all of its attempts and all of its claims over all of its history, man's attempts to invent foolproof machines that will never do wrong or will never do something other than what they're designed to do is a 100% failure rate. Yeah. Not a high percentage of failures, but it only takes one. Think about it. I know. I know. Film at 11. Film at 11. Shout-outs. Anybody got any shout-outs? There may not be any this well, week. I, well, I, for one, yeah. welcome our new robotic overlords. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I know. All right. No shout-outs? David? Jeb? Quick shout-out to the Kansas Aviation Museum and their upcoming uh, Wright Memorial uh, Dinner yeah. Uh, coming early November, banquet, uh, they'll be adding three names to the Kansas uh, Aviation Hall of Fame. Uh, it's good to see the museum is uh, kicking along and turning over. They're having a sim- they had a simulator weekend recently. They, they got some more stuff going on. Uh, hats off to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I was reading, I, I saw someplace in one of the uh, uh, online aviation news things that the administrator is going to talk to your... Uh, your Wichita Aero Club sometimes. Well, they, yeah, the uh, next next week actually, and I'm planning on trying to make that. Uh-huh. The administrator was up here. I, this happened a couple episodes the acting ago. Acting administrator. Yeah, the acting administrator um, was up here uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, I me- I've been meaning to mention it on the podcast. Um, they had the. Uh, um, I had mentioned a while back that the runway at Nashua, uh, Nashua, New Hampshire, ha- was closed um, while they were switching over to this new runway that they've just constructed. And the airport um, was, well, not the airport was closed, but the runway was closed. There was still helicopter operations, but the runway, the only runway, was closed for uh, about a week. And uh, when they had completed the construction and were ready to reopen the runway, they had, as you might imagine, had a big, uh, a big ceremony. And uh, I, th- I think the, I don't know if the governor came down, but uh, uh, one of our senators came over and some other politicians came over. And the administrator appeared, all right? Um, and, and that was all pretty interesting. Very cool that the administrator he, came. He's came. testing a transporter. Yeah, well, no, no. Now, see, this is what makes it all very interesting, okay? So I, I was tracking this whole situation because I was curious about how what was going to be the first airplane to land on the new runway. And, um, and, and I had planned to go to this, this ribbon-cutting thing, but I was unable to because of some personal matters that happened uh, in that same week. And uh, so I got some reports from some friends who went there. Um, uh, by the way, a couple of them actually spoke to the administrator, report that he's a real nice guy, very personable, very, very friendly, and uh, um, very approachable. Um, but uh, the administrator came to Nashua that morning in uh, N2. And, uh, uh, and, and so my question was, when did the runway, quote, I'm making finger quotes, uh, open? 
All right. Did it open? Was N was N two the first airplane to land on this new runway, or was the runway not open when N two landed? And that's my scandal. That I, that's the controversy. That's the scandal that I've been trying to. Now, the, the ceremony was like an official ribbon cutting, and yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, they had a whole thing with a podium in one of the hangars, and uh, and you know. Did you take a look at NOTAMs? Um, it, I I haven't looked at them very carefully. I did back then, and it was it was it was you know, it, I couldn't figure it out quite frankly. Um, and so uh, so we were all just trying to figure out you know, and there was some talk about some they had they had arranged for some cool antique airplane to arrive um, at, you know at the appropriate time. Yeah, like in too. <laughs> yeah, for that to be. Yeah. No, 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 no. Um, so uh, uh, that you know, and they were kind of touting that I think as being one of the first airplanes to land on the new runway. Um, but obviously, if the administrator was already there, all right, N two landed on the runway that morning, all right, and well, so, that could have been a check flight. Yeah. So I want to know. Right. I want to know. Did N two land on a closed runway? That's what I want to know. No. Did you see may, any X's may on well the have runway? Been the first so yeah. say again, Jeb. Well, Dave, Dave correctly asked the question. Did you see any X's? Yeah, I, I, I would imagine the X's were gone again. I wasn't there that morning, so I don't know. Um, wouldn't it be something? Maybe that was the ribbon that they cut. By the way, that would be cool. All right, if you're going to open a runway, you don't cut a ribbon that's kind of horizontally across the runway. You have the you have the X's made out of big ribbons, and you cut the. Uh, never mind. You guess obviously you aren't as tickled by that image as I am. I, I think that's a Patty Wagstaff routine. Uh, 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 okay. Um, anyways, uh, uh, we, it was very cool that the administrator came up to the opening of our runway, and uh, um, and uh, and it's it's up and running now. We got this big, new, juicy, wonderful runway. That uh, juicy, uh, juicy. I don't juicy. I don't know. Juicy. Just it came out. Anyways, any other shoutouts? <laughs> juicy, juicy runway. Any no. other? Sh- I, I, the only the only. Th- um, now, I'm trying to come up with, with a comment about, you know, thankfully enough, now that we have the Pilot's Bill of Rights and we have um, this uh, repository of NOTAM information, we could go back and, and look at this NOTAM and say, oh, wait a second, we don't really have that right now, do we? Yeah, okay. And only give them some time, give them some time. That's and now Jeff- for Juicy Lucy and her trained Gila Monster. Yeah. All right, let's see now. Shout outs. Shout outs. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. You do have a shout out. Something in mind. Um, um, uh, no. No? Oh, I know what it was. What? Yeah, what, yeah. what? What? Okay. Um, and I don't know, and I, I must confess, I, 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 I should know this, this individual's name. Uh, I'm going to presume uh, it starts with Colonel or Lieutenant Colonel or something like that. Uh, but whoever is the uh, aircraft commander of Air Force One, uh, kudos to him for uh, allowing those knowledgeable about aviation to once again have evidence enabling us to separate the wheat from the chaff uh, through a CNN story involving a missed approach that Air Force One executed uh, in Toledo, Ohio a week or so ago mm-hmm. uh, that was a big to-do and you know Obama's plane goes around and and all this kind of stuff, and, and uh, it's like, yeah, I don't think so. No, no. I, yeah. I don't know how many times Air Force One goes around or has gone around. I, I'm, I'm guessing it's a very short number, very small number, but 
he, you know, the dude did the right thing, and um, uh, there's some turbulence on final he didn't like. Uh, probably a little bit of wind shear, and uh, decided, nope, let's uh, come back for another try. Mm-hmm. And uh, did the right thing and made a nice, safe landing uh, by all reports uh, uh, the second time around. And um, uh, f- again, th- thanks for the lesson. Thanks for uh, uh, helping us uh, once again decide that we really don't want to get our aviation news from the general media. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Hey, that's Jeb Burnside. Jeb's a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, jeburnside.com, aviationsafetymagazine.com, um, aea.net, and um, let's see, sometimes on uh, avweb.com. And uh, I skipped over the other part. Anything you're working on you want to talk about? or uh... Uh, Just finished up a little piece for AEA. Um, not sure which issue it's going to appear in, probably November. Um, on, uh, interestingly enough, the impact of something completely unrelated uh, and it will ha- that it, the impact something completely unrelated will have on avionics and especially in-flight entertainment and perhaps uh, electronic flight books and that uh, uh, impact is generated by the new iPhone 5 oh really yeah and the impact comes from it being a little bit bigger a little bit taller than the uh, previous iPhones and having a different connector. And oh. there's, a, there's a, a plethora, if I can use that word, of uh, IFE, in-flight equipment, uh, in-flight entertainment equipment, I should say, uh, installed and in use today that is predicated on uh, the iPhone platform. That's where the programming content comes from. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, all that installed equipment is, is no longer compatible with the latest iPhone. Yeah. Furthermore, yeah. Uh, and you're the you're probably better better plugged into this than I am, but all in all appearances are that uh, the next uh, iPad, the iPad Four, whatever it will be, um, will also sport this new connector, thereby rendering all of the um, uh, iPad connections that we have in our aircraft uh, obsolete and, and in need of replacement. Um, Get ready for that if you're in, if you're in the market for the new iPad when it comes out, but it, it points up the uh, the the how you know a depending on consumer products uh, for longer term aviation uses can can we can render ourselves obsolescent very quickly, but it also points up the need to install and and, and consider alternatives to these these physical connections um, when we're planning such systems. Hmm. Interesting. You have to take a look at that. Yeah. And that other voice out there is Dave Higdon, an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what are you working on? Anything fun? Well, I'm working on a a, a, a piece about uh, the market for light, used light jet. Uh, and I just had a piece hit my mailbox today from as Jeb was talking about, avionics news. And I looked at the cover and I went, oh, I know that story, lightning detection and data link. It's the cover story in the October avionics news magazine from AEA. It starts on page uh, 20, it looks like. Uh, I vaguely remember doing this two or three months ago. 
Oh yeah, I know. Yep, magazine. Welcome to the world of magazine writing, huh? But it, it's it's about the uh, the options available, the 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 shortcomings and and the strengths of combining lightning detection, spherics devices, and data link weather in the cockpit. Uh, to give you actually a picture of your situation that, in my mind, is equal to or sometimes better than uh, airborne weather radar. Hmm. Interesting. What publication that's going to be in? Avionics News Magazine. It's out now, yeah. the October issue. And where can people find you in general on the net? Uh, well, AEA.net through their uh, magazine link, uh, avbuyer.com for the stuff I do with World Aircraft Sales, Aviation Safety Magazine, uh, dot com for the stuff I do for aviation safety. And if you're an NBAA member, uh, my stuff shows up on non-bylined, but still shows up under, uh, on the Business Aviation Insider publication produced by NBAA. There are still people embarrassed to run your byline? <laughs> you know, uh, that's okay. Uh, with what they pay, I can the live check, with the anonymity. The yeah, okay, all right. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, please check out uh, my uh, Kindle ebooks uh, on aviation and on other things. You can learn more about those at uh, uh, Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. Um, I've just recently now uh, returned to a project that I, got, uh, I set aside back in the summertime, which is uh, volume two of my Around the Field collections. And uh, hopefully sometime in the uh, next month or so, I'll be able to make enough progress to get that one posted uh, in Amazon. Uh, you can read all these uh, uh, Amazon uh, Kindle eBooks uh, on your Kindle device or on the, uh, using the Kindle Reader software on your iPad or your laptop computer or your desktop computer. And, you and if also- there's one thing we can say about Jack, he's been around the field. Nod, nod, wink, wink. And uh, and in addition to the Amazon thing, you can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for his help with our show notes and his work in the forums. Please take a few minutes and check out ECHO, the General Aviation Online Media Channel, and that's at uh, uncontrolledairspace.com slash ECHO. Lots of fun stuff there, including a lot of, uh, of clips from the early days of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. And don't forget, you can check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat directly with us and also with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. You can see who's doing what on the New Ratings webpage of fame and much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? Uh, live long, go fly, live long, prosper, live long, and love life. And the longer you fly, the longer you live because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. It's easy for you to say. Uh, That's enough talking. Let's go flying. Hey, MFFM.